If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to go to Philippians chapter 2. Catch you off a little bit off guard. We are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, but I'd like to start at a couple of other passages this morning while we try and set up a foundation for when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're a friend or a visitor, I've been preaching through what's called in our Bible the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. They're written by Paul to two individuals, obviously by their names, Timothy and Titus. And they're being sent to, uh, church is plural. Uh, the church in Ephesus was made up of all kinds of house churches and others in the, in the area of, of Ephesus. And then Titus was sent to Crete, the Isle of Crete. And there again, were house churches and other uh, area churches there and there to put things in order. And so what we've been looking at or asking ourselves is, if we are the church, you didn't come to church, we are the church, how do God's people then live life? And so for the last number of weeks, we were looking at elders. Now we're looking at deacons, and I've called deacons God's leading servants. All right, elders are God's servant leaders. Deacons are God's leading servants. But I want you to roll your back your mind here a little bit as we look at Philippians chapter 2. If you follow Twitter at all, I, I, I do, and, and uh, I know I, my friend uh, Richard and I, when we were in ministry together, was right when Twitter was really becoming popular and you had MySpace and you had Twitter and, and all these different things. And we thought that we would come up with a, a new one and call it My Twit Space uh, Face. Um, but uh, anyway, on Twitter, some of it is good. And Andy Bannister tweeted out this particular statement this past week. He said, the church is called to be culturally engaged, but morally distinct. Now think about that. So he's saying you're engaged in your culture, you're living life with people in the world, but you do so in a way that sets you apart. You don't talk like the world. You don't think like the world. You don't act like the world. Something has happened. But he says, are we sometimes guilty of being culturally unengaged and morally similar? In other words, we get wrapped up in our churches or in our holy huddles. We get wrapped up in our own little circle of lives, and we kind of have no idea what the world is going through or what the world is struggling with. And yet, then they look at us and think, you're no different than us. You have nothing to do with us, but you don't really act that different from us. You don't talk that different. You don't act that different. You don't think that different. You just think you're better than us. Guys, that's a lot of what the world sees and hears and thinks. And we have to be honest about that. And so opening up in this particular passage or this sermon, what I really want, the big idea I want you to take away with you is this. Here's my sentence for everyone. It's the sermon in the sentence. Has Jesus so transformed you that you will now give your life to serve him and others as he gave up everything to serve you? Now, I don't want you to snap answer that question because I want you to think through it. The first part is, has Jesus transformed you? Has so had an impact on you, his grace, his mercy, who he is, his character, his power, his love, his mercy. Jesus, the total package, has so transformed you that you have no other option. In fact, you think it's only reasonable that you would now give your life to serve him and others because he gave up everything to serve you. Now, I want you to really wrestle with that. Now, as you do, I want to ask a couple of questions. I want to try and set this up. How many of you, by show of hands, and maybe this is a, right here, to, by show of hands, how many of you have ever visited a brand new church, like a church you've never been into before? Put your hand up. If you've ever walked into like a brand new church, all right, many of you have, and especially if you maybe gone to a church that's completely different than what you're used to, all right? When Deb and I lived in Charlottetown, uh, a number of years, one of the perks of living in Prince Edward Island is we would have what we called staycations. So I would have my holidays, but we stayed in the city of Charlottetown, and we would do work on our home and little projects that we didn't get to throughout the year. And Prince Edward Island in the summer is beautiful. There's every shade of green, all the beaches and stuff like that, and we would enjoy those things. But on Sundays, to give the church that I served in a break from me and me from them, uh, Debbie and I would often take our family and we would visit other churches in the city of Charlottetown. And some of them were very similar. But there were times, especially when our kids were young, where we went into very different types of churches. 
And I have to be honest, where, where things were very different, they stand and sat at different times, different types of music, different types of things, place, things were placed differently. One particular church experience, people waved flags, all right? Now, I'm not judging that or anything at all. I'm just saying it happened, all right? And I just remember our oldest boy was next to me, and then it was Jordan and Abby and then Debbie. And while this was happening, Brandon grabbed me by the arm and pulled me down. And I went, I, I went to, and he goes, Dad, this is wigging me out, all right? This is really freaking me out right now, all right? And it was because it was so different to us. Everything was different. We didn't understand why they were doing it. We didn't understand if there was an order to it. We didn't understand if everybody was allowed to do it. I just remember one guy, one woman was waving her flag and she was snapping it and hitting this fellow in the forehead. And uh, I felt bad for the guy. He didn't seem agitated by it, but it was just different. All right. Well, think as well. Have you ever gone to a new restaurant for the very first time? Friday night, Deb and I got to go with dear friends of ours. We love them so much. They invited us to go out on a double date. And so Friday night, we went downtown to the keg. Now, we've been to the keg before, but it's our first time since we got to St. John's going to the new keg where they moved over one and it's all expanded and everything like that. And so we went into it and they have these beautiful automatic glass doors that open up and you, and you know, you almost feel like someone should go, oh, as you walk in. And there was this barrage of, of people waiting for us at this welcome center and everybody was beautifully addressed and they doted on us and welcomed us and told us all about it. And then they gave us this little disc because our reservation wasn't ready and this thing was going to beep and, and stuff and tell us when we were needed. And, and they said, feel free to look around the restaurant and then other people that work there, there was busboys there that knew, uh, knew this couple and they stopped by and they chatted with us and then this woman came and told us our, our little disc started to blink red and we got uh, up and they, they took us and they took us up in this glass elevator and it was just like you were ascending into the clouds of food heaven. And, uh, you know, the elevator opens and you go out and there's all this ambiance and everything and they guide you to your table and they sit you down and they, they have a beautifully decorated table and you look at all these things. And while we were there, we were fascinated. Deb and I were taking it all in. We were drinking it all in and we were greeted by all of these different people. But you know what? We were there from about 7 o'clock till almost 9.30. Never once did I meet the chef. Never met the chef. Never saw the inside of the kitchen. Never saw if it was, you know, living up to federal cleanliness clothes or anything like that. We did a lot of that by faith, all right? We did inspect the atmosphere. We did look at the attitude of the staff and the friendliness. We definitely inspected the cutlery and the plates, all right? And most definitely, we studied the menu and we enjoyed the food, all right? But have you ever thought about church like that? Now think about it. How often when you go to a new church, you don't usually walk into a new church and meet the inner sanctum of a church. You usually walk into a church and there's a foyer or a welcome center and you're introduced by uh, greeters or ushers and sometimes ushers will take you and you'll have a seat and you'll hear the pastor from the distance, but sometimes you don't even get to meet the pastor, especially if you're in a bigger church. In bigger churches, uh, the pastor comes out from a side door, he preaches, he goes out the other door and you, you never meet him, all right? But now think about how that would work and affect us in the fact that I think there's a lot of parallels in a restaurant and church. And if I can stretch it just a little bit, maybe the chef is God, the ultimate over all these things. And maybe the menu is our Bible. And this menu, everything on it is good to eat, all right? And you should taste of it all, all right? But have you been to a restaurant where you've had really bad service? <laughs> if facial expressions could tell stories right now, right? Have you had, and, and have you ever noticed that based on the service you got from the waiter or waitress or how you're almost, if you got really bad service, you almost assume the food will be bad. You almost right out of the gates assume ev everything here is bad. Well, how often does that happen in church? Now, I want you to think through all of that, okay? See, if you look at your Bible in Philippians chapter 2, in a Greek culture, I want you to realize that in the Greek culture of the first century, the idea of serving others was not popular, 
All right. If you were a Greek in the first century, your everyday conversation was not, hey, man, it's been a great week of serving others. Your, your conversation usually went, I've got five slaves now, or I have 20 slaves now, or I have this servants for this, and I have servants for that, and my house has gotten bigger, my possessions have gotten greater, and so on and so forth. And we didn't yet. The Lord, when he comes into the first century of Israel, into a Greek culture, seems to raise service serving to a completely new level. In fact, he would use the word servant or service as an expression of his humiliation in giving his life and suffering and death on a cross. That's why I wanted you to go to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, in verse 4, Paul writes to Philippians and says, let each of you, now he doesn't say let some of you. He doesn't say let those of you that are struggling with this. He says, let each of you, it is all-encompassing, let each of you not only look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So notice, first of all, it's not saying that you are not going to care for yourself or for your family. He's saying you can't think only of yourself and only of your family. You will think of the interests of others. You will come, you will kind of work through what I do and how I treat myself and others, uh, uh, my family affects others around me. So notice what he says, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what is yours in Christ Jesus and this mind is coming in verse 6. This is the mind that is yours. How do you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others? You think like Jesus Christ, who? Now, here's our descriptor, verse 6 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, but as the Trinity decided on the plan of salvation, he did not think that, no, 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 I will not do this. I will not do what is about to be said here. I'm God. He said, no, I won't won't grasp this. Verse 7, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. If you write in your Bibles, okay, I want to build a case here. If you circle that word servant, all right, that's the same Greek word for where we get the word deacon. Okay, it's the same word, all right? So Paul is saying that Christ took on the form of a servant, a minister, a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice what is the result of this. If your mind is, I won't grasp, I won't cling to what I think I have a right to. No, I'd rather serve and and I'll, I'll, I'll humble myself and I'll be obedient and I will do that no matter where it takes me. Notice verse 9, because Jesus did this, Verse 9, therefore God has what? Highly exalted him. Because Jesus was willing to serve, God highly exalted him and bestows on him the name that is above every name. Not just some names. or It's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, Calvary Baptist and friends and visitors, ladies and gentlemen, realize there's coming a day when the name Jesus Christ will no longer be a curse word. But when you say the name Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now it doesn't stop there. If this is the mind of Christ, notice verse 12. Therefore, so because of that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice how holding fast to the word of life. I tell you, I, 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 I don't know if it's obvious. I love the Bible. I just do. I love God's word. It just, it makes sense when you read it and you study it and you apply it to life. It just makes 
sense. And so here you have Jesus Christ taking this word service, minister, and he gives it the sense of its loving action for others, especially in the church, which is rooted and founded upon divine love as we look to the atonement of Christ. So Calvary, yes, we're walking through 1 Timothy. We're trying to figure out how we're supposed to act and think and talk as a church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, we've learned about the gospel and how to keep the gospel the priority. We've learned about prayer. And especially in light of an election that just passed, an election coming up, we're to pray for all men, especially for kings and those in authority. You may not agree with your politicians, but we are called to pray for them and to love them and to respect them, okay? So we need to do that. And in fact, what better thing if the church really prayed? Mary, Queen of Scots, said she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of France. So imagine if the church really prayed, and imagine if our government knew the church was really praying. All right? So we learned about prayer. And then we learned about the role of women in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We learned about the role of men. We learned about elders. And now we're coming to this group of people called deacons. But before we even get to that, I want to make it boil it down even further. I want us to consider what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? All right? When I first arrived here back in the middle of January, for about four or five months in the bulletin, and I would try and highlight these things when I emailed you, we went through a list of the New Testament called the One Another Commands that are in the New Testament. And believe it or not, there are 100 one another's in the New Testament. And in fact, you might, know, might not realize this, but four of them are about kissing. And unfortunately for David Crowder and others, it's not about sloppy, wet, unforeseen kisses. All right? But believe it or not, of all the one another commands, one-third of them deal with unity in the church. One-third. Be at peace with one another. Mark 9.50. Don't grumble among one another, John 6.43. Be of the same mind with one another, Romans 12 and Romans 15. Accept one another, Romans 15.5. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another, Galatians 5.15. Gently, patiently tolerate one another, Ephesians 4.2. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.32, seek good for one another and don't prepay evil for evil, 1 Thessalonians. One third of the one another commands are about love, to love one another. In fact, exactly that, love one another in John 13, 15, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 Peter 1, 1 John 3, and 2 John 5. Through love, serve one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love, 1 Peter 5. Give preference to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Don't be proud. Be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. And here's some of the other ones. Don't judge one another. Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 Don't lie to one another. Colossians 3.9 Encourage and build up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Stir each other on to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10 And on and on it goes, all through the New Testament. One hundred times we've been, and these are not uh, suggestions. These are not, well, if you would like to. No, these are those commands that are given to those who've tasted grace. And as you saw in the video before I started to preach, they've been set free. So here's my question. Have you been set free? Have you been set free by the love of God? Has your life been transformed by Jesus Christ? So let me ask you this then, Calvary Baptist. Are you a servant of God? I mean, really, when you get up every day, do you go, I am a child of God, therefore I'm a servant of God? Would you do anything for Jesus? Remember the old commercial? Oh, this is dating myself. Do you remember the old caramel commercial? When they say, you know, I'd do anything if I could know the secret of how they got the caramel inside the chocolate. And the devil would go, anything, right? Would you do anything for Jesus? Would you do anything and here's your reason, your motivation for doing anything, because Jesus has done everything for you. Jesus has done everything for you. Now stop. Imagine a world where a church of growing, serving, loving, praying, answer-finding, awe-inspiring Christians, what would that look like to the world? 
What would that look like to the world? You see, now we're back to John 13 and John 17. Remember? John 13, 34, how we love each other proves that we're really Jesus' disciples. John 17, 20, how we're unified together really proves that Jesus is God. You'll be shocked at how many times you read through the Bible, and that's where you end up. You always end up back there. So, would you be willing, now are you ready? Because I know this, I, I brought the restaurant thing in, you got to stick with me on this. Would you be willing to be a waiter or a waitress for Jesus? Hmm. Really? Would you be willing? We're trying to figure out how God has structured the church. We know that this is extremely important to God because Paul writes it in our very next passage of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Remember, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth, a foundation of the truth. Paul is telling Timothy, the way we function as a church should tell the world, should tell the city of St. John's, if you go to Calvary, you will find truth. You will find a foundation for truth. The trouble is, is that maybe we've gotten so preoccupied with some of the controversial aspects of church lately. Things like men and women, marriage and relationships and sexual identity, Maybe we've gotten so caught up where we've been kind of culturally engaged but not truly culturally engaged. We've confused maybe the essentials from preferences, distinctives from doctrinal purity. And with all this talk of these things, maybe have we been led away from some of the more obvious questions? Like, are you, are we living a holy life? I forget the church father that said, where all of the arguing that goes on about what you can't know about the Bible, the church would be so much better off if people just started obeying what we do know about the Bible. And yet we're so easily caught up in the controversial. Are we guilty of playing games at the foot of the cross as a church? So even as we seek to know what God's word, and indeed, by God's word, God himself wants for his church, as it now relates to deacons, stick with me, okay? Let's be sure we're not sitting here, or me up here, where we're simply like the Muppet judges, simply interested in whether or not the pastor lands on your point of view, but let's get back to what the Bible actually says, and what this particular calling actually means, which is bigger picture, would you be known as a servant? Would you be truly known as a minister, a humble, happy, willing waiter or waitress for God's glory and for your church family's benefit? So let's start with number one, what are deacons? What are deacons? I've been laying this foundation, so let me see if I can get us through this. What are deacons? Now we learned, like elders, elder, the Bible has this terminology of a plurality of elders but the word elder is the noun, and many adjectives describe it. An elder is a pastor or a shepherd. An elder is a bishop or an overseer. An elder cares for and protects and feeds and prays for and provides. And all these things are describing the office of the elder. Well, believe it or not, deacon has a few forms or meaning as well. Let me walk you through this. There are three types of Greek words for deacon. One is diakoneo, which means to serve. All right, it means to serve. The next one is diakona, which means service. All right? And finally, the noun form, diakonos, means deacon. All right? Now, if you understand anything, I want to make sure you get it that the word deacon in English, we don't have an English word. When the translators translated from Greek into English, they simply took that word diakonos, gave it English letters, and we created an English word. We created the word deacon. It's like the word baptize or baptism. That's not an English word. We took that from the Greek language, from the word baptismo, because baptismo in the Greek means to immerse. That's what it means. And so back in 1611, when we were first getting all of this, Mr. King James decided when they were told, that when they told Mr. K uh, King James about this, he knew that by translating it, it was going to create controversy. So he told him, no, 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 just make a new English word, all right? And so this is one. So they, in a big fancy word, as Steve Dock often talks about, the, the $50 theological term for this is the word deacon is a transliteration, not a translation. 
okay? It's a transliteration. We took a word out of the Greek and we made it an English word, but the word actually means to serve or service or in the noun, deacon, okay? So we have an action, we've got a ministry, and we've got a title. And these three words are used over 100 times in the New Testament. And the Greek word diakonos, diakoneo, and diakona have just a wide variety of meanings. But in general, they refer to any kind of service that supplies the needs of another person. It underscores personal service rendered to another, usually with humility. It was, the first, u- it was first used to describe someone who waited tables. Now, here's my second passage. Go to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. And this fascinated me in my studies this past couple of weeks. The Gospel of John, which is my favorite gospel to tell new Christians to read or if you are struggling, because the Gospel of John, more than any other gospel, has the words of Jesus. And so if you're kind of struggling or you're trying to find your identity, if you've got questions about Jesus, I always encourage people to go to John, the Gospel of John. But in John chapter 1, it starts with, right, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and you have all this, and John the Baptist comes along, and we talk about worthy is the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then these people from John say, listen, here comes Jesus. And, and John says, he must increase, and I must decrease, and I'm not worthy. And then there's the calling of, of, of the other disciples, and, and so on and so forth. And as you come down to it, where Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, And at the end of it in verse 50, Jesus answers Nathanael and says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God. Now, you would think that John would just keep motoring with this kind of majestic theology. Notice where you end up. The very first miracle Jesus ever performs you end up at this little place called Cana at a wedding. And there, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, he's called his disciples. John the Baptist has already said, he must increase and I must decrease. And behold the Lamb of God. And what's this all going to look out? These disciples are coming. And so the wine ran out in verse 3. Now, I won't get into what kind of wine. You can argue about that amongst yourselves. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, notice this. His mothers said to the servants, the word servants is diakonos, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, in other words, Right out of the gates, John wants us to realize to follow Jesus is to be these servants, these waiters, and it's do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. If you're going to follow Jesus, do whatever he tells you. And now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and we're told that they hold 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and they're just waiting. They're just servants. They're just there doing everything they've been asked to do. And this is what we're told. So what are deacons? It underscores the personal service rendered to another. In short, let me put it this way. This person was known to be one who served. Are you known as a person who serves? Now, I want you to hang on to this image of a waiter or a waitress. That alone will likely mess with your mind. Let's be honest. Because God creates his church. He brings his church to create a people to be known as table waiters. Talk about humility. There's not a lot of room for pride there. And you might shock to me know just how, when, and where this is used. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus called himself a deacon. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. All right? And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul talks about elders and pastor teachers equipping the church in Ephesians chapter 4. It was he, God, who gave some to the apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare or equip God's people for works of service. That's diakonah. 
service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. So there are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And then there's that passage in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, where Paul writes to the Roman church, he says to you, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centria. Jesus even said in John 12, 26, whomever serves me, diakono, must follow me, and where I am, my servant, diakonos, will be. I want you to see how often this is used. It's everywhere. These are only a handful of the hundred that are throughout the New Testament. So, here's the question. What are deacons? Here's it. Number one, deacons are Christians who follow Christ, the ultimate service servant. You want to know who a deacon is? First and foremost, a deacon is a Christian who follows Christ, the ultimate servant. A deacon is not looking for power or for a label or for power and prestige. No, a deacon is just a Christian who's a servant who loves Jesus and wants to follow Jesus as his example. And secondly, deacons lead the church in service. Deacons lead the church in service. That's what deacons are. And you see that in Acts chapter 6 in the shadowing of it in 1 Timothy 3. I have a dear friend of mine, Richard Agnew. He worked with me in ministry in in Charlottetown. He now is in Pembroke, Ottawa, and pastors a church aptly named Calvary Baptist Church. And he preached through 1 Timothy. One of the things he said was this, probably the best way to understand the role of deacon is to think of it as those who model spiritual service and work alongside the elders, implementing their oversight and teaching in the practical life of the church. Stanton Nofel writes this, to use the English word deacon for this function is not to really use a translation of the Greek word, but a carryover of the Greek letters into English. This is what I was talking about. It would be better to call these people ministers, or are you ready for this? People helpers. People helpers. Are you known as a people helper if you know Jesus? See, if we had been doing that, now think about that. If we had been doing this throughout the, the, the decades and the centuries and the millennia of the church, really thinking in terms that, Every Christian is called to be a, a people helper, a minister. Wouldn't you think maybe our churches wouldn't be quite so pastor dependent? Are a lot of churches too pastor dependent? Where if someone gets sick and they're in the hospital, and even though a whole bunch of people from church will go and visit them, they'll think that the church hasn't cared for them because the pastor hasn't been there yet? And we kind of create this clarity, this clergy and lady, and we don't even realize it. Whereas before, if this word was really meant to be what it is, minister, people, helpers, you could actually say, no, I've had two or three ministers have come to visit me this week while I've been in the hospital. Because these persons were freeing up the preacher for the, pre for the prayer and study of God's word. Now, do you see where I'm going? It, it, it's hard to preach this because it seems a little self-serving. And it may seem like I'm whining a little bit, all right? But I want you to see this. It's why I've spent so much time. So what is, an, what is a deacon? It's so a Christian who follows Christ as the ultimate servant. It's a Christian who leads others in service. But what do, what do deacons do? What do deacons do? All right? So the situation in Acts 6, remember we looked at that two weeks ago. The apostles were not only leading and preaching and teaching and praying, but they were involved in the benevolent work of caring for widows. They were taking care of church people. They were doing all of this, but it grew to such proportions they couldn't do it anymore without getting enough time for the word of God in prayer. And so they chose seven men to look after these needs. Now stay with me. That principle should probably be followed today, right? Elders have the responsibility of the total shepherding activities of the church. However, they cannot do the total program themselves. I can't do it all. Paul can't do it all. Daniel can't do it all. We can't. I can't. All right? So each Christian is to be a servant of Christ by helping to meet the needs of others. The first mark of a healthy church is when we all love each other and we just want to meet each other's needs. When we just want to meet each other's needs. But there does come a time in a church as it's growing, just like this church, it's growing, and we're going to need to look for other facilities. There is a time that certain people need to be selected to ensure that the needs of the body are being taken care of. In Acts, the first group was elders. And then as the need increased, the next group were the deacons. So deacons are selected servants, not to take away the service from members, but to help ensure that the service is not neglected. 
deacons represent the whole congregation in specific kinds of services. So with that in mind, then let me put it all in a nutshell. The role of deacon came to being as a result of God working. A church was growing. More people were coming. All the mess was coming in the church with it. I I tell you, if you want to know, the one thing I've been faithful for since I landed in St. John's, Newfoundland, is every single day, as God is my witness, I have prayed that God would bring messy sinners to this place and that we would just get together and just realize how incredibly gracious God is with all of our junk. And it would not be a place where we have to come and be afraid or ashamed or that we have to hide or we have to pretend. No, that we can just be honest and say, I'm struggling. I'm hurting. I've made a mess of things. I've made a wreck of things. I'm, 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 I'm doubting or I'm whatever it is. And you, you know what? Come be with God's people. And I love it. The messier it gets, the happier I get. But you know what? The messier it gets, the more we need each other and the more we need to serve each other. That's the reality of it. The church is growing and the needs are multiplying. And you see, our problem is, over the years, because we've confused the word deacon, now what we have in a lot of churches is we've confused the role of elder with the role of deacon. And so often today, you'll have a church that has a pastor, and then you've got what I call deacons or eldens. All right? So we've got elders that are kind of acting like deacons or you got deacons that are kind of acting like elders and if you're going to have that you're going to have all kinds of confusion and you're going to be very very sensitive to the way you define it and who is it and when that person is but the bible says there's very clear differences between elders and deacons so in order for elders to continue doing what they're called to do needed to do and was the best for the church deacons were developed yes developed all right from Acts chapter 6 and onward. So you will not find in the entire New Testament a one-size-fits-all for the office of the deacon. There's nowhere I can take and go, here's what it says a deacon is and does. No, you won't find it. You'll just find that we're back to waiters and waitresses again. Deacons, they don't just serve food, they serve people. They don't just serve food, they serve people people so deacons serve God by serving people so what do deacons do number one they meet needs according to the word of God they meet needs according to the word of God that's what you see in Acts chapter 6 isn't it as the deacons came to be needed as a result of growth and yet in growth problems arose some people were being neglected some things weren't being done and deacons were called upon to example what it means to live out God's word in day-to-day life So, for all of you here, whether you're called or needed to wait tables, set up tables, stack chairs, to help in the parking lot or give out bulletins, collect trash or wash some dishes downstairs to maybe help give away some food or drop some food off to someone. Maybe you're asked to mow the lawn or paint a fence or pick some berries. It's a good Newfoundland thing to do. Maybe you're asked to sit by a bedside or buy some flowers, send an email or make a card, write a letter. Maybe you're asked to pray with someone or hold a hand at a nursing home or with a loved one at a funeral at a wake. Maybe you're asked to give a hug or arrange a banquet, help plan a wedding or walk somebody through a funeral. And on and on it goes. You will find this is all the work of, of, of ser- servants, of ministers, of people hel- helpers. You do, you do so always and according to the word of God. What's according to the word of God? With fairness, with love, with humility, with patience, with wisdom, and with stewardship. Secondly, deacons support the ministry of the word of God. So they They meet needs according to the Word of God, but they support the ministry of the Word of God. So deacons primarily came into being so as to release and support the elders. You remember in Acts 6, the apostles said now that they couldn't continue to wait tables because they had to stay in prayer in the Word of God. And so the task was too big. The organization of it was too hard. And so deacons allow allow elders to pray and study to spend time with counseling and seeking God's face. And so God has structured his church to provide for everybody here and for everybody in this city. A group of servant leaders to pray over you and study God's word and to feed you spiritually, to come alongside you and shepherd you. But then he also gives us leading servants, those who watch out for your physical needs and for the needs in our church family, the needs in our community. Elders cast vision and hold up the word of God and deacons help the vision be a reality and keep the elders in the word of God. 
So deacons serve elders so that they can lead, and then they lead others so they can serve. That's the role. Now, again, I'm going to do this from time to time. Stop, because I know this is heavy. I realize it. It's not sexy. I get it. You know, it would be a lot easier to just, this is almost more like lecturing than some about preaching, all right? I get it. But really think about a church where this is truly happening. You know what happens? Deacons unify the church around the Word of God. So they meet needs according to the Word of God. They minister. They support the ministry of the Word of God. But they unify the church around the Word of God. And when the above happens, when you get to Acts chapter 6 and you get to verse 7, it says, after they did this, the word of God increased and there was more people coming to Jesus and there was nobody being left out. Because what happens if you come to church and you feel left out or you feel ignored? Now, be honest with me, because I know I've talked to enough of you that the majority of you here have had experience where you have felt left out and or ignored. What happens when you feel that way? You will either think I'm not important or, or worse, you'll think I'm not wanted. And that's not supposed to be the case in church. Everybody here should know that they're important. And everybody here should know that they are wanted. And we do that by serving each other as we serve Jesus Christ together. See, deacons step in by caring and leading the whole church to care and get the whole church involved. Thus, they bring the church together in meeting needs, which in turn gives God glory. Uh Uh-oh, you're back to John 13 and John 17 again. So, and I'm going to say this now, so stay with me. I can run faster scared than you mad. Deacons are not a group of power-hungry, control-the-pastor Judases. Yes, I said Judas. All right? Deacons serve God, they serve their elders, and they serve the church by giving God glory, seeking to free the elders to put the vision in place and by leading others to serve them. So practically thinking, again, what is it, what, that could be lawn care or food care or this building or where we go next or budgets or missions and on it, on it goes. But as we bring this to a conclusion, I want to quote Stanton Nofel again. He says, there is no hint that this function of deacons is a policy-making function as in an administrative board meetings They are simply servants meeting specific needs of the church body. Because these ministers would have a variety of tasks and a variety of circumstances, working with both males and females in the midst of difficult times, it's important that they have the characteristics that would cause them to be respected and trusted and not likely to fall into temptation. So what does all this practically mean for us today? How do you take this away? And I set it up for next week. I want you to see the wonder and glory of God's order. There's an order to everything. God does nothing by mistake. Nothing is arbitrary in God's plan. God created with a plan. God sent Jesus to earth with a plan. Jesus lived and died and rose again according to God's plan. Now, folks, listen to me. You exist as part of God's plan. You are not an accident. You are not insignificant. You were created in the likeness of God. And you were done so because you could show forth his glory and proclaim his power. So before we leave here this morning, I want to make sure you all understand. In John chapter 3, Jesus would say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now break that down. You, that's personal. It's personal. See, if you change the subject to someone else, then you don't need to be born again. Somebody else does. No, but Jesus said, you, you, everybody in here, you must, number number two, you must. That's authoritative. Jesus said, well, I want to suggest it to you. Or I I think this would be something you'd like or enjoy. No, you must be. And folks, if, if you're here this morning, you say, I resent that. That's all the more reason for you to hear you must be born again. Be born again. You know what that means? That's passive. That means you need a miracle. You can't save yourself. Even Nicodemus says, what do you mean? I got to go back into my mother's womb and be born again. How can that happen? And Jesus says, Nicodemus, aren't you a teacher of the law and you don't get this? In other words, he says, you need me. I need God to call into existence within me a new aliveness to God. Remember our video on the catechism? You won't obey the Ten Commandments apart from God. You must be born again. So have you been born again? Is Jesus your Savior, your Lord, your Redeemer? Wait for it. 
Wait, your example? Will you serve Jesus the way he has served you? If you are gifted in the areas of organizing or influencing, if you sense needs or you, are, you have a perceptive spirit or you're a b- gifted at administrating, will you serve God in these areas in this church? Church, I, gotta tell, I can't do this alone. Even me and Paul and Daniel, we, can't, we need you. We need each other. Will you serve God? Will you do this without any thought of yourself? But for others so that your elders can pray and study and shepherd the flock of God. And man or woman here this morning, I want to end with this. Jesus is calling you. He's calling you to deny yourself and stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to make sense of this life as if it's centered about you, as if you were the center of your universe. Stop trying to measure up. Stop trying to conform. Stop making excuses or trying to convince yourself and others that you're okay. Stop being deceived as if you've got it all and you got this and you can handle it. Stop lying to yourself that you're okay or that you're happy or even content. Stop trying to think you're, you're entitled, you have a right to be happy or to have pleasure. The answer to all those things is no. What you're looking for in all these things are a cheap imitation. They will never give you what you need. Turn to and trust in Jesus. He's your example, your Savior. He is your servant. Jesus became nothing for you to be everything for you. He lived so you could be set free from your selfishness. Name your desire. Name your desire or your wish. Name your failure or your sin. Name your hope or your dream. And Jesus is better, greater, and more fulfilling. See, Kevin DeYoung writes this, the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is chiefly this, whether they listen to God's messengers and receive God's message. And now, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, Pastor Steve, listen, I'm a Christian. You're talking about this de- deacon thing. What are you asking of me? What are you saying? All right, I'm glad you asked. As you go, here's what I'm asking you. If you're a part of Calvary Baptist Church, will you be godly? Will you just be godly? I had, in my last ministry, actually about a little over a year ago now, I had announced that I was leaving and coming here, and a dear friend of mine at Grace Baptist came to me in my office, and he said, Pastor, how can I help you? How can, how can I serve you? How can I make this transition as easy for you as possible? And I looked at him, and I said, Brother, will you just be godly? And I have to be honest, his eyes kind of went down, and he was almost dis- disappointed that I didn't give him a big task. But that man did not know what my week had been like that week. He didn't know about the marriages that I had heard about that were just about to break up or the mother that had cried in my office the day before because her son ran away, or the lady that was in my office because she found out her husband was cheating on her and was going to leave her. And you just start to feel the weight of ministry. And so often I just want to look at all of you and just say, would you just be godly? Be a godly people. Be godly. Follow Christ. Secondly, be involved. Be involved. Be involved. I love the church. I really do. I really love the church. And Jesus loved us so much, he died for us. And listen, it's true, he loves us individually, but he loves us the best corporately as a family. I've studied and read and I've preached through this list and I've reminded again and again of why I love the ministry of the gospel. And I gotta be honest with you, if you're not involved, you're really missing out. You really are. And if you never serve, you're simply going to come and get and never pour into people's lives. You'll never quite connect in a meaningful way. In fact, the Bible says you're just going to go up and down and up and down and up and down in your Christian life. This thing called following Christ, church, it's the real deal. And yes, it can be messy and it will be painful and you will shed tears and you you don't know how stuff are going to turn out and you can't believe the bad stuff that happens. But at the end of the day, Jesus wins and it's worth it. And so be godly, be involved, be open. Please be open. It may that God wants you to pursue something more. It may look like getting involved for the first time or in a deeper way or in a riskier ministry or in something outside of your comfort zone. It might be in a way that you don't want to be used. I remember one of the godliest men I ever met, he was the wealthiest man I've ever known. He came to me once 
asked if he could meet with us as elders, and we really didn't know what to think. We thought this could be really good or really bad because we didn't know either he was going to give us a pile of money or he was going to tell us all off and tell us he wasn't going to give any money, and we obviously assumed the worst, all right? So we were gearing up for what this meeting was going to be like. So this guy comes and sits down. He's got this beautiful, he, he's driving this fancy car. He comes to church. He meets with us in our office, and he says, brothers, I've been praying, and God's allowed me to have some free time and spare time. How can I be of help around the church? And I just sat there dumbfounded. My associate, Richard, says, well, we need someone to clean the bathrooms in between Sunday school and the morning service. I near kicked them. I was like, you can't be serious. You know what? The guy, without missing a beat, the guy says, well, so where's the janitor's closet? And for the next six months, this guy cleaned the bathrooms in between Sunday school and church. He really did. He was incredible. Will you be involved? Will you be open? Will you be faithful? God will likely not entrust you to care for a larger ministry on a larger platform until you've proven yourself to be faithful in the little things. And then finally, will you be watchful and in prayer? I'm asking you to join in prayer. Let's pray. Folks, look around you. God is working. God is saving souls. God is bringing families together. God is bringing new people to us from all four corners of the planet. We're busting out of this building. We need God to work miracles. We need God to do things. But we need to serve Him. And we need to be in prayer for each other, for your elders. The church of Jesus Christ is a special place. Paul spent a lot of time helping Timothy to know what to look for in regards to church leadership. No wonder, right? The church, after all, is supposed to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. The gospel and people in need are that important. How are you going to respond? And you know what? When you do, you're going to find out what I've been discovering, that he's more than amazing. Brother Daniel, would you close us in prayer while our music team comes and we close in a song, please? Father God, Lord, we come before you and thank you because you served us. Though we're not worthy of being served, though we turn from you, while we were still, still sinners, you died. Father God, I thank you for your word, sharper than any sword. Lord, it can cut deep into our hearts, Lord. I thank you for the truth and the grace and the wonder that you offer us from your word. That we can be children of God and that we're free to serve you and serve the church. Serve each other. Father God, I just pray now that we would be, as James says, doers of the word, not just listeners of the word. Lord, that we would not walk away and think about, well, you know, that guy over there probably should be serving more, but we should be thinking, Lord, how can I serve? How can I chase you more? How can I model what you've done in my life to those around me? Father, Lord, I just pray this for all of us, that every one of us would desire to serve you and serve your people and everyone around us. In your name I pray. Amen.